Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by my favorite college in America, Hillsdale College, which proudly refuses every penny of government funding to remain independent. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. It's all quiet in the underground bunker. Doors closed, locks bolted. But the great one isn't just resting on his laurels. He's making sure your weekend is even better by giving you his best. This is the best of Mark Levin. I purposely didn't post stuff over the holiday weekend regarding this budget and the and the dead and the debt ceiling and so forth because I hadn't read it yet. But even more than that, Twitter and so forth, it's just not the right place to have a discussion about this. I'm not, despite the fact that I post, I'm not one of these social media warriors. I watch people who are in their 30s and their 20s. They have these damn iPhones on 100% of the time. And what I was doing this weekend was finishing my, the edits on my project. Which I think is more important than constant Twittering because Ten days from now, you're not even going to know what anybody said. So I took a lot of time today going over this. And what you're hearing is a lot of superficiality in many respects. I read the Heritage Foundation objections. I think the president of Heritage Foundation is a terrific guy. I've never met him. I've never spoken to him. But it wasn't particularly persuasive. I heard what, or read what the New York Post wrote in favor of the deal. I didn't think that was particularly persuasive. I read what our friends at the Washington Examiner wrote. I didn't find that particularly persuasive in favor of it. I watched this guy, Dan Bishop, on the steps of the Capitol. He certainly wasn't very persuasive. He didn't say anything other than grouse. Stephen Moore, somebody I respect a lot. He supports it. Duke Gingrich, I guess he's a sellout and a liberal too. He supports it. But none of that matters to me. None of it. I don't care who supports it and who opposes it. Just like you, we have to make up our own minds. It's not good enough anymore to say so-and-so opposes it, so I oppose it. So-and-so supports it, so I support it. I want to read something to you. From 2015, an entire book on the debt, Plunder and Deceit. My book. On the debt, Chapter 2. George Mason University economics professor, Dr. Walter Williams rightly describes the underlying pathology driving the nation to economic and financial ruin as a moral problem. He said, we've become an immoral people, demanding that Congress forcibly use one American to serve the purposes of another. Deficits and runaway national debt are merely symptoms of that real problem. Williams stated that nearly 75% of today's federal spending can be described as Congress taking the earnings of one American to give to another 
through thousands of handout programs such as farm subsidies, business bailouts, and welfare. Dr. Thomas Sowell, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute. He said there was a time when the purpose of taxes was to pay the inevitable cost of government. To the political left, however, taxes have long been seen as a way to redistribute income and to finance other social experiments based on liberal ideology. And I added the consequences of the rising generation, meaning the one behind us. The consequences for them and future generations of this immoral, politically expedient, and economically ruinous behavior and policies are unambiguous, as evidenced by statistic after statistic which are mainly ignored, discounted, or excused by most of the media, academia, and, of course, governing statists. Now, I want to read something to you that came out earlier this month. I haven't seen a single so-called conservative columnist even talk about it, let alone write about it. And this will be in my new book, because I went through it quite extensively, but it's not what the whole thing is about. The Government Accountability Office is probably the best office in the government. It has the role of looking at the finances of the country. And you may not know this, but about three weeks ago it released... The nation's fiscal health roadmap needed to address projected unsustainable debt levels. Not a single one of those conservatives in the House who oppose this have even mentioned this. Not a single one of those conservatives prior to this deal even talked about it, even wrote about it. And yet I've got to keep hearing them go on and on and on. That's the problem with Washington. Here's the facts from them. Ready? And bureaucrats don't normally talk like this. The federal government faces an unsustainable fiscal future. That's the first sentence. If policies don't change, debt will continue to grow faster than the economy. Our review of the nation's fiscal health found, one, Large annual budget deficits drive debt growth as the government borrows to finance spending that exceeds revenue. Two, interest costs rise and make up a larger share of total spending as overall debt and interest rates increase over the long term. Three, risks include delays in raising or suspending the debt limit and events such as natural disasters. The federal government faces an unsustainable long-term fiscal future. At the end of fiscal year 2022, now that would be September 30th of last year, debt held by the public was about 97% of gross domestic product. Projections from the Office of Management and Budget and the CBO and GAO all show that current fiscal policy is unsustainable over the long term. Debt held by the public is projected to grow at a faster pace than the size of the economy. And they talk about By 2051, by 2051, the size of the economy will be twice, excuse me, the size of the government will be twice the size 
of the economy. Now think about that. Increasingly large deficits, they say, drive unsustainable debt levels. Unsustainable debt levels. Now this is dire. That's the government. The government watchdog. So what does this deal do? What does this deal do? Putting aside names and people lobbing me and writing me or going on TV, beating their chests. First, let's start with some political reality. There are some people who would never support anything. One guy who voted against even the proposal that the Republicans put on the table says, I could never support this. He never supports anything. So it's difficult when you have, what, a five-member majority or so, give or take, in the House of Representatives to accommodate somebody like that. Number two, McCarthy's working with a very, very thin majority, as I said. And I would guess about a half a dozen of them were prepared to vote down anything. And it's very unlikely that Biden, that Biden would simply sign off on what the Republicans passed because that would endanger his presidency and drive his party further, further nuts than it is. Number three, it's strange how silent Mitch McConnell is about all of this and the Senate Republicans generally other than the conservatives. Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, a handful of others. But where is the Republican leadership in the Senate? Why are they sitting back and waiting for other people to carry carry the load? In fact, they don't tell us what it is that they would or wouldn't accept. Not that it would matter to me or you, but why don't they? So it's left to the House. The Senate Republicans are AWOL, 100%. Now, when you hear or read what they say they've accomplished, it sounds pretty good. The problem is, it's not good enough. I'm not going to sit here and go through my notes with you on some of the traps and some of the loopholes that are in this. Kevin McCarthy is not somebody who wants to go along with Biden or wants to support what's taking place in this country. I don't know why anybody wants to be speaker these days, and what's interesting is the 20 or so original opponents McCarthy, they couldn't cobble again together 21 people to vote for anybody. So they all pat themselves on the back for moving McCarthy to the right. Apparently, by their own definition, they didn't move him far enough. But they had no candidate. None. I happen to think he's an earnest man. 
So the people who trashed him before are trashing him again. Yet last week they thought he was doing a great job. I asked a couple of these people who were of the 20 before last week. What did they tell you on this show? They think he's doing a great job. But this proposal doesn't go far enough. It simply doesn't. You have a two-year debt cap that is raised by $4 trillion. $4 trillion. And part of the problem for McCarthy and for Biden is that some of the Biden people are going around telling everybody how they intend to get around caps and other provisions that will have been agreed to. And so Biden and the Democrats are not negotiating in a way that's reliable. They're already telling us what they're going to do. Now, we can hold out. By my calculation, I took a sharp pencil to all of this, <clears throat> the amount of money that comes into the federal government, certain things that are to be paid that have nothing to do with general operating expenses, and yet they really do, because they destroyed the trust funds for Social Security and Medicare. So basically that comes out of general revenue, even though it's not supposed to, but they play this game that it's not. So let's put that aside. By statute, those programs are to continue to pay. So what you really have here, and the big lie you've been hearing is that we don't, is a several-month period where the government can continue to function. And as time goes on, they have to reprioritize what they're going to spend their money on. And the president can do that. He doesn't want to do that. And then the Democrats are dealing with kamikazes. You're dealing with people who would be perfectly happy to see this country collapse. So my own view is more time should have been taken and can still be taken to get even a better deal. It may not be the deal that some who claim to be conservative would want but I suspect it could be better. And therefore, I'm not voting. But I think they ought to take another look at this. Mark Levin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? 
Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Making your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. Guess what? There's a vote around 8 p.m. tonight. I'm told on this uh, on this deal. It's likely to pass the House and then it goes to the Senate. Now there are conservatives in the Senate, are there not? Our buddy Mike Lee, Ted Cruz. There's Rand Paul, who's a libertarian. There's some others. Uh, J.D. Vance, you know the list. What will they do? Now, they're going to be in the minority. But they can slow it down. They can slow the vote down. They can offer amendments. There's other things they can do in the Senate that you can't do in the House. What will they do? So we'll watch that. See what they do or do not do. And to reiterate, not that I really need to, but to underscore, to make it abundantly clear, I would not vote for this. Why? Because I think they should have fought another month or two. They had that much time. There was not going to be a default. And probably get even a better deal. But here's where I differ from some. These attacks on Kevin McCarthy are actually bizarre. I started to think about this this morning. In four months' time, this guy has had numerous bills passed through a very, very tight house on parental rights, on the wall and securing the border, one after another. And they go to the Senate and they die in the Senate where the Republicans really are do-nothings. Do-nothings, especially under McConnell. He mustered a, a majority to put an initial proposal, debt increase, passed it, sent it to the Senate, and the White House had it. The Senate has done absolutely nothing. They could have voted on it. Why didn't they? They did nothing. And I know we had 43 Republican senators sign a letter. But there was no jumping up and down demanding a vote on the Republican proposal. And Biden sat on his hands hoping that the Republicans would fray and they didn't. And that's how the negotiations such as they were began in truncated form. So the only one carrying any water are the Republicans in the House and McCarthy. And so his, his negotiators negotiate this deal that comes back. Some people are happy. Some people are unhappy. Some people aren't sure what they are and so forth and so on. So in this process, 
What the House passed was never going to become law. Because the Senate wouldn't take it up. And Biden wouldn't agree to it. And the House Republicans can't enforce this on their own. So the argument then is, could they have gotten a better deal? And I believe if they'd been more patient, they likely could have. Now we have these committees in Congress, one headed by Jordan, one headed by Comer. Who are really working very, very hard. We're going to have Julie Kelly on it in hour three. To try and peel the onion on some of these terrible scandals. And they're not giving up. Now they don't have the power to prosecute anybody. Not in ways that they would use. And they've uncovered a lot so far. Whether the American people are interested or not is a whole other issue. And so when you consider there's a very small majority of Republicans in the House, for the responsibilities that the House has under Article 1, it's been pretty active. And it's been pretty conservative. But in the case of this, it's just not good enough. Now I see our friends, including one who I will debate tomorrow night. They're so thrilled in a way. This proves how terrible uh, Kevin McCarthy is. And you hear this from some pseudo-conservatives, an actual conservative. I think to myself, well, who else was going to do anything? It's perplexing. Nobody else could be speaker on the Republican side. Those are the facts. You can ignore the facts. Those are the facts. Nobody. You can go over there and negotiate with Biden and get the best deal in the world. You're not going to get enough people in the House of Representatives to vote for. This is the system today. It's broken. This is the system today. It doesn't work. So they can trash McCarthy all they want. Why? It's a freebie. It's a freebie. I already said I would not vote for this. And I also said during January that if McCarthy does something that I disagree with, I'll say so. And I said so. But McCarthy's not the devil here. This system's been going on for a decade. Well, finally, we're going to draw a line. How? The system cannot be fixed inside Washington. And anybody who says it can is a liar. There are ways to try and deal with it, ways and try to box it in a bit, ways to try and limit it. But the Democrats will win the House again with the Senate and the presidency. 
And there'll be few ways to stop them. There will be few ways to stop them. Which is why I'm having Mark Meckler on this program in about an hour, head of convention of states, to explain that what's required here, at least on the political and constitutional side, is something much more fundamental. And that rather than beating our chest endlessly about this, and we can beat it somewhat, I got it. Would it be great if the debate were over a convention of states day in and day out? So why don't conservatives raise it? You know, if you crack open liberty and tyranny from many, many, many years ago, here's what I say here. What can be done? What can be done? I don't pretend to have all the answers. Moreover, the act of writing a book places practical limits on what can be said at any given time, but I do have some thoughts. The conservative must become more engaged in public matters. It is in his nature to live and let live, to attend to his family, to volunteer time with his church and synagogue, and to quietly assist a friend, a neighbor, or even a stranger. These are certainly admirable qualities that contribute to the overall health of the community. But it's no longer enough. The statists' counter-revolution, now I would say the Marxists, that's where we've come to, has turned the instrumentalities of public affairs and public governance against the civil society. They can no longer be left to the devices of the statists, which is largely the case today. This will require a new generation of conservative activists, larger in number, shrewder, and more articulate than before, who seek to blunt the status counter-revolution, not, intimidate, not, not imitate it, and gradually and steadily reverse course. More conservatives than before will need to seek elective and appointed office, fill the ranks of the administrative state, hold teaching positions in public schools and universities, and find positions in Hollywood and the media where they can make a difference in infinite ways. The status doesn't have a birthright ownership to these institutions. And the conservative must fight for them, mold them, and where appropriate, eliminate them, where they are destructive to the preservation and improvement of the civil society. In other words, don't surrender the bureaucracy, the different agencies and divisions and departments. Don't surrender the culture to these people infiltrate them participate in them take them over I think this is very very important and I point out here the administrative state of course I write in more detail on the book but these are the proposals Sunset all independent federal agencies every year, subject to Congress affirmatively reestablishing them. Require federal departments and agencies to reimburse individuals and enterprises for the costs associated with the devaluation of their personal private. From the issuance of regulations that compromise the use of their property, eliminate unions for federal government employment, and so forth and so on. There is a whole laundry list of things. Unfortunately, 
in the system today, most of them cannot be adopted. Because Alexis de Tocqueville warned about this. Basically, the endless complexities. You have court challenges, you have activist courts, you have bureaucracies making law, you have Congress that is either unattentive or attentive in a way that is contrary to constitutional limitations. You have a media that basically is a mouthpiece for the state when the Democrats control it and the Democrats, even when they're out of office, That's why I was thinking, there's got to be something bigger than we can do. There has to be something else. There has to be another way. And there is. See, ladies and gentlemen, we have some people out there who, who believe they can invent new ideas, invent new principles that over the last thousands of years that the great thinkers hadn't thought of. And most of these people are in their late 20s, early 30s, mid-30s, and many of them haven't done a damn thing. Except write about their ideas. We here behind this microphone, we've been involved in grassroots movements, whether it's the Tea Party, the Parents Movement, Convention of States. We've looked for real and concrete ways to confront the foundational problems in our politics and our culture. We don't just write columns and issue white papers. We don't just participate in debates till we're blue in the face. We try to do something about this. Even if they had the best deal You can imagine, even if we had the deal that they voted on originally adopted by a Democrat president, a Democrat Senate, and a tiny majority in the House, even if all their wet dreams came true, and I wish they did, because we have to fight at every level and in every way, the trajectory of the Republic is very dire. Mark... You are listening to the best of Mark Levin. I guess you saw where Joe Biden fell today. Um, Honestly, I don't think it's funny. He looks like he's way older than 80 years old. Way older. He tripped over something. I don't know what it was. I think he was uh, gave the Colorado Springs, the Air Force Academy, gave the speech there. A graduation ceremony, he fell over, he had trouble getting up. And I, honestly, I felt terrible about it. I don't wish that on anybody. So, uh, I just think we have to come to grips with the fact that he's a very old man, much older than 80 that his mind does not function the way it should and that he shouldn't be president of the United States. 
under any circumstances. And I'll tell you what else. I think the Democrats, God forbid if he is elected, uh, it'll be they who use the 25th Amendment to replace him with Kamala Harris. That's a uh, lingering concern I've had in the back of my mind. You know, there's something that if I don't do it now, I won't get to it. So I'm going to do it now. As you know, I'm good friends with Stephen A. Smith. We don't always agree, that's for sure. But so what? It's not what I base my friendships on. He's a very, very nice man. Very decent man. He's a very smart man. Again, I don't always agree with him, for sure, and he with me. But he is a straight shooter. He shoots as he sees it. And he said something on his podcast yesterday that has not received the attention that it deserves, in my view. And so I will make it go national. Cut 16, go. When we going to look at ourselves, when it comes to black people being killed in the streets of America? I don't even want to get into what happened in Chicago, but I have no choice. This past Memorial Day weekend from Friday to Monday, at least 53 people were shot. Mm-mm-mm. 11 fatally, according to police. If one black person was killed by the police, we'd raise holy hell and in some cases there'd be riots in the streets. And damn it, I'm not here to sit up there and blame anybody for that because I'm tired of the nonsense that we've seen going on in the streets aimed at black Americans. That's not where I'm going. What I'm saying is, where's the due diligence when it comes to putting a spotlight on what we're doing to each other? Because this is pissing me off. 53 lives. 53 in one weekend. It's not the first time this has happened. It's been happening year after year after year. Chicago, St. Louis, Baltimore, the list goes on and on. Where's the noise at? Where's the protests? Where's mainstream media talking about that? Where is it? That's what I want to know. Because let me tell you something. Nothing else matters if we're dead. Nothing else matters if we're killing each other. That is, uh, well, it's something we've been saying here, but it takes a lot of guts to say that. If you're on ESPN, and honestly, for many black Americans, and this guy's guts, he's got courage. Again, you don't have to agree with him, but he says what he believes, and he's right, 100% right. I've been talking about this till I'm blue in the face. There needs to be more leadership in every community, but especially the black community that's facing this down. Because this is the great civil rights issue of our time. When you're talking about over 50 people being shot 
over Memorial Weekend. 50 people. That's one city. And I'm talking about black people shooting black people. And there's crickets. You hear nothing. You didn't hear President Biden. You didn't hear the Attorney General. You don't hear Kamala Harris. You sure as hell don't hear from the senators of Illinois. You don't hear from Al Sharpton. You don't hear from anybody. Listen. You happen to be listening to this show, but now here's Stephen A. And he's put a marker down. I think this is very, very important. What he says here. You can have all the complaints you want about society, about other people, about the police and so forth. That doesn't stop this. That's his point. This is going on. This is going on. So what are we going to do about it? Nothing. They're not going to do anything about it, Stephen A. They're not going to do anything. You need more police, specifically in these communities, where the facts are these murders are occurring more than in other places. That's a fact. Somehow, some way, we have to work on morality and how parents raise their children. We've got to have a dose of school choice so kids are literally taught rather than just gone through the motions so we can subsidize the teachers' unions. There are things we can try. Gun control. How many people who are murdering other people are going to be affected by gun control? It's one thing if it's a family dispute or a husband and a wife, something like that. Most of these killers are gangbangers. Gun control? We have laws in some states, capital punishment. If you kill somebody, if that doesn't deter you from killing somebody, how will gun control deter you from killing somebody? There's something terribly wrong here. And I wish the Los Angeles Dodgers, LeBron James, Kaepernick, the NFL commissioner, baseball commissioner, I just wish all these athletes and sports, whatever they call them, leagues, I'd have more concern about that because there's, you know, a lot of these kids look up to these players and they're focused on these leagues and so forth. I wish there was more effort in this regard because this is where all the slaughter is taking place. And maybe Stephen A. Smith has started something here because he has tremendous influence. In sports broadcasting, he has tremendous influence in the black community. He's highly regarded and highly respected, including by me. So let's hope this this ignites a fire of some sort. And I just would say to my friend, keep at it every now and then. 
because it can't be a one-off. It won't work. But it's so important that he, that he mentioned this because people don't notice it, and it really is grotesque. Mark Levin. The Great One makes your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. So how's that economy going? Macy's and Costco sign a warning about the economy. You know, I still go to Costco for that hot dog and soda, Mr. Well, it's $1.50. Now, you know they're losing money on that. That big all-beef hot dog. Do you ever eat a hot dog there, Mr. Producer? What's wrong with you? I mean, it's well worth the membership. I can tell you that. At least it is for me. So CNN, Macy's, Costco, and other big change. By the way, let's stop a second here. Costco. Is there anything like Costco in any other place of the world? No. Walmart. Is there anything like Walmart in any other place on the planet? No. These big supermarkets... Florida, we have Publix. In Virginia, we have Wegmans and places like that. Any other place on the face of the planet? No. You can choose all kinds of beef. All kinds. It's like hamburger. 90% fat, fat-free. 95% fat-free. 80% fat-free. Oh, my God. Then you go over to the, to the fish counter. Big shrimp, little popcorn shrimp, all different kinds of fish, literally from all over the country, if not the world. You go to the beverage section. Wine from all over the United States, all over the world. So many kinds of beer, you go cross-eyed. Go to the bread aisle. Oh, my God. Seven grain, six grain, nine grain, no grain. Oatmeal, wonder bread, potato bread a lot go to the freezer section 100 different types of yogurt 50 different flavors butter margarine butter with plant oil it goes on and on and on go to the fruit section fruits you've never even heard of before you don't even know what they are even plastic bags 50 different types of plastic bags for God's sake Go to the candy section, which I'm not allowed to, my wife tells me. We've never seen anything like this in all of humanity. What's responsible for this? The government? Government regulations? Capitalism? The market system? The poor people in America are the middle class or the higher class in most of the third world. Did you know that? The vast majority of poor people, as defined by the federal government, have color televisions and at least one car. 
people in America, the average citizen, lives better today than any king or queen lived 100 years ago. Capitalism, the market system. That's why we've never had a revolution in this country. Capitalism and freedom, it's not a perfect marriage, but it's a very good one. They're very close as being married as any economic system and any free system on the face of the earth. It's an imperfect system, but it's a fantastic system. Capitalism. (coughs) Excuse me. We may not be glad when our flights are canceled or delayed. But more Americans have access to flights across the country or anywhere in the country or anywhere outside the country than any people on the face of the earth. Think about it. It's remarkable. We don't stop and and think about what capitalism and freedom have brought us in this country. A great deal. And that's even so despite all the regulations. Despite the movements towards socialism in Congress and in the states, many states. Despite all that, it still has a way of muscling through because when I say it, I mean you. When you abandon capitalism for statism, You're abandoning what's between your ears. The ability to think for yourself, the ability to create, to develop, to produce. You smother entrepreneurship. You do all those things. All those things. And yet capitalism is under attack. From the Marxist left and some pseudo-conservatives. It's under brutal assault. It's terrible. It's terrible. And I only bring that up, ladies and gentlemen, because Costco and Macy's here, but particularly Costco, well, they kind of know what's going on. Costco, Macy's, other big change say shoppers are pulling back at their stores and changing what they buy. That could be a red flag for the U.S. economy. Macy's today cut its annual profit and sales forecast after customer demand slowed. Costco finance chief said last week that some customers were switching from pricier steaks and beef for cheaper meats like pork and chicken, which you can get at Costco. This is a trend that is been common in previous recessions, he said. And by the way, Walmart, we talked about a story about a month ago, more and more people, not just from the bottom, but in the middle, are going to Walmart. And even people are driving up there in their Mercedes and their, and everything, their, and their Benzes and so forth, and they're, they're going to Walmart because the products there tend to be cheaper. And what about online shopping? Amazon. It started in America, too. What about during the pandemic? What would people have done without online purchasing? What would they have done? 
would have been tough, tougher than it was, despite the fascistic Marxist, I would argue, pandemic restrictions that were placed on so many. That's capitalism. Mark Levin. We're giving you nothing but the best, the best of Mark Levin. Some of you may not have been hearing the back and forth. You work for a living within the Republican Party. So I want to give you a chance to hear what McCarthy had to say and a chance to hear what Chip Roy had to say. First McCarthy, cut two, go. Right, because at this point, you guys only control, Republicans only control one half of one branch of government. <laughs> so for you to get what you got was great for the most part because, you know, the Republicans did much better in this than the Democrats did, obviously. Uh, and, and to your point, uh, Joe Biden that never wanted like, to uh, negotiate. That's, but, that's not McCarthy. Go ahead. Because there are going to be, you know, a bunch of Republicans on the big vote are going to vote no. You're going to need a bunch of Democrats to say, you know what? I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm going to vote with Kevin McCarthy. Well, normally when you make a, when, when you come to an agreement with two different parties, you have people on both parties vote for it. But the difficulty that's different than any time before is the Democrats will tell you there's nothing in the bill for them. Nothing. The president numerous times, he kept asking for tax increases, new government programs. And I just said no. And he says, well, there's nothing in it for us to vote for. I said, well, there's debt ceiling increase we can go forward on. I'm not sure people want to go past that deadline and interest rates go up and others. Right. I think this is a good first step, but we can go much further. And I have a plan for that coming forward where we can look at the entire budget and tackle our problems, especially in a bipartisan way. This is reasonable. This is sensible. But it's also a responsible thing to do. You know, he's among the most rep- popular Republicans in the country. And there's at least one kamikaze who's talking about making a motion to remove him as speaker. So, I don't follow the kamikazes. And again, when we talk to Mark Meckler, he'll be here tomorrow. I want to know how many of these kamikazes have supported Convention of States in an activist kind of way. I don't necessarily disagree with those who are opposed to this. But you can see where the guy's coming from and you see all the things that he's tried to do and you can see he's trying to do things that Reagan didn't do and Trump didn't do and certainly Bush didn't do and he's Speaker of the House with a handful of majority votes. So, cut three, go. Well, look, uh, it's a different Congress. It's a new day. It's not that you have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. You've got 72 hours. This isn't a 1,000-page bill. This is 99 pages. And this is different than we've ever had before. We're actually going to spend less money this year than we spent last year. And your viewers have heard me give this analogy before. A debt limit is like the family having a credit card, but you've been charging it up every year and just keep lifting the limit. This year's different. We now say we're going to 
spend less. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't able to look at all what we spend our money on because the mandatory spending, Social Security, Medicare, that's all off to the side. So I can only look at about 15% of what we spend our money on. So what we did is in elements like non-defense, that's going to go below 2022 levels. So that's a very positive. But the other thing we did, we put ourselves on a spending plan. We cap how much we can spend for the next six years with government. But we also did... I get that, but they cannot control the out years. One Congress can't control what's going to happen in the out years. So, for example, if the Democrats take over the House, they're not going to honor that. I just want to make that clear. Go ahead. Different. In this family, we may have a child that uh, able-bodied, not married, no kids, but he's sitting on the couch collecting welfare. We're going to put work requirements on that individual, so he's going to have work requirements. He's going to get a job, and it's going to make the life easier. But we're also going to look at places we've been spending our money that we've wasted that we're going to return, right? Like all that COVID money that we didn't spend, we're going to bring it back. But one of my favorites here is $400 million for CDC, the Global Fund, where we'd use that hardworking taxpayer money over to China. We're not going to do that. We're going to send that back. And then we did a number of other things here, right? One of the things that's very interesting we did, that the president has been spending money wildly. If he wants to put a new regulation in, we took an executive order of President Trump's, and now we're putting it into law and making it a little tougher, where if he wants to put a new regulation in, he has to cut government if it costs more than $100 million. And then we looked at things about cutting the red tape, that we get so frustrated that we can't build the roads. It takes seven years. We now reform NEPA, the Environmental Review. Instead of waiting seven years, now the studies are only one to two years. This hasn't been done in 40 years. And then we did something interesting to make government or make Congress consequences for their lack of action. They have 12 appropriation bills that they have to pass every year, and they never do, and they come back with that omnibus. Now we say, if you don't do your job, it's a 1% cut across the board. So encourage members of Congress, not now with the new Congress, you actually show up, you're now you're going to have to work. This is going to be the biggest cut by the Congressional Budget Office says in history of where we're going forward. To do all that, we allowed the debt ceiling to go forward for the next 18 months, and we'll readdress it, hopefully with a Republican president, a Republican Senate, to even make it stronger. Mm-hmm. Now the rebuttal. Here's Chip Roy at a press conference today. Cut for a go. My colleagues, be very clear, not one Republican should vote for this deal. It is a bad deal. No one sent us here to borrow an additional $4 trillion to get absolutely nothing in return. But at best, if I'm being really generous, a spending freeze for a couple of years. That's it. That's about what you get. And frankly, you're going to make things worse. And my Democratic colleagues know it. That's why they're supporting it. Mm-hmm. Well, That's a lot why. of them are not supporting it, actually. But go ahead. Around gleeful. Look, there's a reason our Democrat colleagues support this. There's a reason that Mitt Romney supports this. There's a reason that Bill Crystal supports this. It's all the same stuff. There's a reason also, I guess, Newt Gingrich. Steve Moore. I mean... That's why I said at the opening of the show, don't get caught up in who supports and who opposes. Use your own brain, your own noggin. Analyze it yourself. I get texts and emails. Did you know this? You ought to think that. Nothing's more annoying. I said, I'll wait till it comes out. 
Go ahead. There's a reason that our conservative allies are opposing it roundly. The Club for Growth scoring against it. The Heritage Foundation scoring against it. Freedom Works scoring against it. Ron DeSantis publicly opposed. President Trump said he thought we should default rather than pursue this kind of lunacy. At the end of the day, the only yeah, person but, would you default. Know, in all due respect, that's not what he did during his presidency. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm just being extremely honest with you. And if I'm not, nobody else will be. Go ahead. Is Joe Biden, unless Republicans default on the American dream by voting for this bad bill. That is why this group will oppose it. We will continue to fight it today, tomorrow, and no matter what happens, there's going to be a reckoning about what just occurred unless we stop this bill by tomorrow. There's going to be a reckoning either way. You know what's amazing, America? Even if Chip gets his way 100%, it's not going to save us. That's how far along we are here. That's how bad this is. It's not going to save us. Cut five, go. There are two paths here. Take up the bill that we passed. It's a good bill. It's sitting over in the Senate. They could pass it in the Senate of the President. Second, Speaker McCarthy should pull this bad bill down. We should stop taking this bill up right now. I don't think he even has a majority of his own conference at this point. We'll find out later today. He should pull this bill down, and then we should do exactly what we're doing right now. We have COVID rescissions right now. COVID rescissions are in the bill. COVID rescissions of $29 billion. They've already taken that in this bill, and they've swept $22 billion and just set it over the Department of Commerce for play money. Take that money. Take IRS money. And go tell Janet Yellen, you're going to pay every bill you need to pay, and we're going to sit down at the table and do the job for the American people. But don't tell me you're going to put me over a barrel for $4 trillion because you refuse to do your job. That is what Speaker McCarthy should have told the President of the United States. Well, there you go. Now, what about the Democrats? Jim Clyburn, he's a party man. Cut six, go. I know you've said that you will vote for the compromise debt bill negotiated between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy. Tell us why. Well, thank you very much for having me, Wolf. Simply because I recognize that there are a lot of things at play here. Number one, the full faith and credit of the United States of America is at stake, and we've got to keep that protected. Number two, we are governing. And when you have two parties, as I've said before, 51% of the House is under Republican control. 51% of the Senate is under Democratic control. That means that we've got to find compromise. And I think that we've found a very good compromise. I spoke throughout this process with the president and with Shalanda Young. I've never met anyone in government more competent uh, for her work or more compassionate for her cause. Well, you need to get out a little bit more there, Clyburn, then you will. Go ahead. And I think that when I saw her uh, giving a big thumbs up uh, on this deal, I felt that it was uh, incumbent upon me to do what I can to uh, help get it across. But Jim Hines, 
Democrat Connecticut, he doesn't see things that way. Cut seven, go. Hakeem Jeffries said to him that their Democrats are mad because there's nothing for them in this bill. What do you make of it? Yeah, that's right, Shannon. I mean, I think there's there's two problems with the bill. Number one is, yeah, um, none of the things in the bill are Democratic priorities. You you know what those priorities are, because in the last two years when we controlled the House, we capped insulin at $35 for seniors. We did uh, drug price controls. We passed the biggest uh, infrastructure investment in our country ever. We addressed climate change. Those are our priorities, and not a single one of them are in this bill. Now, that's not a surprise, given that we're now in the minority. Um, but the, the obvious point here, and the Speaker didn't say this, um, the reason it may have some traction with some Democrats is that it's a very small bill. It's a very, very small bill. Now, um, you know, had the bill looked anything like what the Republicans passed on the floor where they rescinded all of the money designed to create an electric battery industry in this country, designed to uh, further reduce drug prices, uh, you would have had unanimity against it. But, um, you know, the IRS money is a pretty good example. Why the Speaker, by the way, wants to defend taking IRS police off the block so that more people can uh, you can cheat on their taxes is beyond me. You know, a-hole, people don't want to be harassed by their government. But you guys are all in on the police state. But that's another story. Go ahead. The number's right. Yeah, you know, $80 billion sent in that direction over a period of time. A very, very small fraction of that has been uh, rescinded. So, again, not a bill that's going to make any Democrats happy, but it's a small enough bill that in the service of actually not destroying the economy this week may get Democratic votes. There you are. It's all over the map. And that's why you got to look at these things for yourself. And that's why I think they should take a little bit more time and go back. The country's not going to default. Unless Biden wants it to default. But if anything's been demonstrated through this process, at a minimum, he doesn't. And... um, What Biden was hoping originally was that the Republicans would fold, that McCarthy couldn't get the majority together even to make the proposals that they did, and that they passed it in the House. That's not what happened, obviously. And then finally, he puts his team together to negotiate at the 11th hour. Now, it's true that the Democrats don't call anything victory that doesn't massively increase spending, massively increase the central government, and just continue to push, push, push. But what I'm trying to tell you is this. Their trajectory that we're on as a result of the way the institutions of government have been bastardized are going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to change. Because, as I've said many times, in many ways, we live in a post-constitutional America. You know, one of the people who texts me most, and I won't tell you who it is, is an absolute rock-solid conservative. And we're dear, dear friends. And I get these texts all the time. This guy won't do this, this guy won't do that, this place is broken, this is this, this is that. I agree with him. And yet this dear friend of mine does not support Convention of States. So I think to myself, well, how the hell are we going to get out of this? How are we going to get out of this? 
See, the problem is, ladies and gentlemen, let's say we win the next election and the one after that and the one after that. Nothing will stop the Democrats from going right back to this. Nothing. Not even if Brother Chip were the Speaker of the House. Nothing will stop them. Unless they are fundamentally stopped as best as we can in the Constitution itself. And even then, they may not adhere to it. But if that happens, it's all over anyway. 